So glad you're here today, and we're going to unpack that uh, text together in the book of Hosea. But the person that's going to do that for us today is uh, Pastor Eric Bancroft. And uh, Pastor Eric Bancroft was the former pastor at Castleview Church, uh, a fellow church in this community doing wonderful gospel work, and a, a dear friend of mine over the last number of years. Eric has left that particular position and is in the process of planting a church in Miami. And so I wanted him to come on this uh, particular Sunday for a number of reasons. Uh, first, a number of us as a staff were together for a, a number of days this week thinking and praying about the future of our church, so needed someone to be able to speak on this Sunday. Secondly, Eric's a dear friend. I want you to know a little bit about the work that God's called him to in Miami so you could pray for that city, maybe connect people in that city. Some of you may be even considering giving to that ministry that he's uh, launching. The third thing is, is um, Hosea 7 through uh, 10 is one of the hardest in all of the Old Testament, and I just wanted somebody else to take care of it for us. Um, so, so it's with great pleasure that I've got my brother Eric here today to come and bring the word. So brother, come, let's give Eric Bancroft a warm college park welcome. Well, thank you for that welcome. I am uh, glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I I'm privileged to be here with you finally in person for as much as I've heard about you and prayed for you uh, as a church. Uh, your pastor is a good friend of mine and has been so uh, over the years that I have been here uh, in Indianapolis since 2008. So I, I love being here, love being with him. Uh, your, your worship pastor is named Eric, so that's obviously anointed by God and uh, favor upon you guys for that. Uh, I have over the years, since I first came here in 2008, prayed for you as a church that God would bless your ministry, God would bless the advancing of the gospel. And look at you. God answered prayers, so you're welcome for that as well. Um, thankful, let me know if anything else you want me to pray for. Uh, but I am excited to be here. Before we get into our text this morning, your pastor has been very kind to me and given me the invitation to just share briefly what God's been doing in our life. But before I do that, some, some context. Uh, in June 13th, 1898, John Augustus Lassiter pulled into Miami on a horse and wagon. And he did so arriving into South Florida after traveling from, for two weeks from Central Florida to get there. And his first job in the city of Miami was to sell sandwiches to the arriving soldiers who were going to fight in the Spanish-American War. Well, that's how he served when he first arrived. Well, fast forward 119 years later, that man, John Augustus Lassiter, is the great-great-grandfather to my wife, Danelle, maiden name Lassiter, now Bancroft. And here we are returning, not to offer sandwiches, but the hope of God's word and the joy and peace found with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're excited for that opportunity. My wife was born and raised in Miami, and I went to college in downtown Miami. We met and married in Fort Lauderdale, and then 20 years ago, we moved away to Los Angeles for me to attend seminary and to be on staff at a church as a pastor. 2008, moved here, was a senior pastor, and thought I would do so indefinitely for the rest of my ministry time. But God began to work in our hearts and began to seek wise counsel, including from your own pastor, a dear friend of mine, and began to just talk with our elders and really realized God was drawing us into this opportunity, wanting to go take the gospel to a city that has millions of people, but only 11% claim any identification with the evangelical church. 
So a city with millions of people, a majority of which are born in some other country and are from around the world, there's endless opportunities for the gospel and just unimaginable opportunities for reaching into so many other countries through this one global city. So I wanna make you aware of something and ask for your help if I can. In the back lobby, immediately out the back of the doors here is a table. You'll find that it's a big banner on it says Miami. And on, the, on that table is what I hold in my hand, a prayer card, because I would love for you to join with us in this journey, asking you to be a part of this with us. There's four ways you can do that. First of all, Perhaps radically, some of you would prayerfully consider actually participating with us, talking with your pastors and elders, making sure it's a wise decision for you. Maybe you would do the unimaginable like we are doing the unimaginable and move down there to be a part of this exciting new work. Others of you being faithful to your local church here, including in your own giving, maybe God has put on your heart to help provide and fund this opportunity to advance the gospel. Others of you perhaps just promoting it, just being aware of it today, telling others about it. And yet others of you, at least if not many more of you, pray for us. My family and I need your prayers. It's a difficult place with a ton of opportunities and said to be a graveyard for a lot of church planning pastors. So in the back, you'll find a, a, a prayer card. You can grab one of these and just tuck that, keep that with your Bible, put it wherever you would keep such a thing to be a prompt for you. And if nothing else, maybe the next time you have a bag of M&Ms, you'll never think the same way about them because maybe with M&Ms, you'll think, I wanna pray for the Bancroft's marriage and ministry in Miami. Huh, am I preaching here or what? <laughs> hmm? So if you, by the way, these are not in the back, so I should just tell you that now. I probably shouldn't tell you that. You'd all rush to the table like, oh, there's no m ms at least I'll grab a prayer card, so. Appreciate your prayers for us. Thankful for your friendship already. Before we continue to further our text, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we continue to worship him. Would you please pray with me? God, we give you praise. As we've sung, so we believe, and can it be? No condemnation, now we dread. We are made alive in Christ, our living head. We are clothed in righteousness divine, and so even now in prayer, boldly we are approaching your eternal throne. We do so with reverence and mindfulness. You are the sovereign one, the creator, the divine judge. You are also our redeemer. You are our heavenly father. God, we pray your continued blessings upon College Park. Lord, bless their pastor, bless their pastoral staff, bless their elders, Lord, with continued wisdom and unity and humility. They center their lives and ministry around the word of God, being faithful heralds of that. Lord, bless the congregation with like-minded humility and willingness to follow to not be like murmuring Israelites who were given great leaders but refused to follow and said wandered in the wilderness for decades. Father, let them be committed to advancing the gospel. Father, we think though not only of this local church, we think of other local churches in the city. We think of faithful churches, Cornerstone Bible Church, Castleview Church, Soma Church, Father. There are faithful brothers heralding your word even now as we pray to you, Lord, bless their ministry. May many be encouraged by your word and others believe in Christ for the first time today. 
Father, we think though not only of our own city, we pray for the advancing of the gospel, the glory of your son around the world, including the city of Miami, be it through our church plant or through others who are planting, Lord, bless for your namesake. Even now, Lord, as we continue to worship you, bless. Help us to see, help us to taste and see that you are good and in you that there is hope. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of show of hands, how many of you, true, true question, like to read biographies? How many of you like to read biographies? Oh, it's impressive. Biographies I enjoy because of the lessons you can learn from them. Uh, some of them are incredibly encouraging. Some of them are rather heartbreaking. Some of them are sort of curious trivia. Some of them you're like, oh, that's something I've never even thought of before. In college, I read, excuse me, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And since then, I've learned the value of keeping a light on in your house at night. <laughs> curious fact. I've also had the heartbreaking opportunity to read A Long Way Gone, the memoirs of a boy soldier by Ishmael Bia and found myself just weeping as I read the story of just the profound illustration of the brokenness of the world where children would be abducted and kidnapped and then brainwashed into becoming vessels of, of wickedness as they themselves were taught how to kill others. I remember reading Here I Stand, The Life of Martin Luther by Ronald Baton, and being so thankful for God, how God uses ordinary people seemingly to do extraordinary things and be used by God to touch so many lives. Here we are today in October, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. My favorite biography, though, is by Arnold Dalimore, is a since passed away pastor from Canada, wrote a two-volume biography on George Whitfield, The Life and Times of the Great Evangelist of the 18th Century. That's a modest title because George Whitfield, with the exception of Jonah, with the people of Nineveh, is on record of seeing the greatest response to preaching in human history that happened in England and here in America. And I will occasionally pull those volumes off and read different sections again and just learn those lessons, being challenged and motivated. In these biographies and these lessons we can learn, we're often asking the questions as we kind of put ourselves vicariously through their story, what would we do if we're in that situation? How would I respond? Lessons that we can learn. Well, this morning, we return to a biography captured in the Word of God that we can learn from and that you as a church have been learning from. And the story I'm talking about is the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, named after the prophet by the same name. And reading Hosea is initially tragic and sad because you learn about this man's marriage to his wife named Gomer. It then becomes surprising and depressing when we learn the connection God is making to the people of Israel because the true account of Hosea's marriage, we realize is Hosea's story is also a, a metaphor, a reality for an even greater marriage, God to Israel. Ultimately though, Hosea becomes uncomfortable and humbling when we see by application parallels to our own lives even today. So if you're taking notes today, the title of our message is Reaping the Whirlwind. Reaping the Whirlwind. And we'll specifically be in Hosea chapter 7 through 
10. Now, I should just say for the record, your pastor picked this text. I would have been in Philippians <laughs> talking about joy. You guys would have liked me. We would have had a massive outpouring to Miami. It would have been awesome. <laughs> no, he wants Hosea. Must be hazing or some type of preparation for church planners. As I was preparing for this week's text, one commentator said the following, this is without question among the most vexing texts in the Hebrew Bible. I texted your pastor, thanks, love you too. Feeling that encouragement. Now, for those of you who have not been with College Park the last number of weeks, maybe this is your first time here. Again, on behalf of the church family, welcome. But I want to make sure you understand where you are, like as if you walked into a mall for the first time and trying to get your bearings. Others of you, perhaps, it's been a while since you've walked into Hosea, maybe caught the first Sunday, but the last two Sundays you've missed. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page and have a bit of an orientation map as to where we are, because we're parachuting into chapter 7 to 10, having already covered the first six chapters. At the time of Hosea, the land of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Israel is the northern part and Judah is the southern part. Hosea began his ministry to Israel during the final days of Jeroboam II. In some ways, these were good years. I mean, they were prosperous at that time. Expanded their, their, their sort of geographical boundaries at the time. However, they're also bad years. Because even with all that blessing, there was problems. Moral corruption and spiritual bankruptcy. After Jeroboam's death, anarchy is reigning and Israel is declining rapidly in this continued downspiraling depravity. In fact, of the last six kings, four of them are murdered by their successors. I mean, just total wickedness. Meanwhile, things are not much better in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uzziah had been struck with leprosy for neglecting his priestly role. Jotham condoned idolatrous practices which opened the way for Ahaz to encourage Baal worship or Baal worship. Hezekiah did have a revival, but it was only short-lived and it only slowed Judah's acceleration towards forsaking the Lord. And so here we are in these 14 chapters capturing what is essentially 25 years of Hosea's ministry to all of the Israelites. Now to kind of, again, make sure we understand where we are in the text. In Hosea chapter 1 to 3 we're seeing there the adulterous wife and the faithful husband. It's captivating, if not concerning. But chapters 4 through 14, we learn about an adulterous Israel and overwhelmingly about a faithful Lord. A faithful Lord. Which takes us to our text today, right in the middle of that second section, Hosea chapter 7 through 10. We need to learn three movements towards redemption. Three movements towards redemption. The, the first movement here in our text is the indictments for depraved crimes. The indictments for depraved crimes. Look at your text in Hosea chapter 7. Actually, the previous verse, chapter 6, verse 11. Look at what he says. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, 
when I, would be, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. Now just stop right there because we're just sort of dogpiling a bunch of places and people are like, like, who are we talking about here? Let me just again give you a brief orientation. So you got Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and of Israel, the largest tribe in Israel is Ephraim. So a lot of times Ephraim is used as a synonym for Israel, like as if they're talking about the same people by the same name. And then sometimes he'll throw in the word Samaria because it's the capital city of the north. He's really kind of talking about the, those in political power at the time. So he's just sort of, it's an indictment against all of them, including Judah in the south. He's talking about them. Now, look at what he says here, though. He says that God will restore the fortunes of his people. Verse 1 of chapter 7. He would heal Israel. Ah, oh, good times. Prayers answered. Problems abated. Friend, look at the text, though. What did it show? It showed the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. What's happening here? God is blessing them. God is showing favor to them. And their thank you card back to God is more sin. Their shout out to, to the one who's provided for them, who has walked with them, who has overlooked them, who has shown steadfast love is more depravity. It has been said, rightly so, that God tests his people through trials, through struggles. A lot of you have that story. That's part of your biography. It's also true, friends, though. God also tests people through blessings, through provision. So what do you do with that? Where do you run with that? How do you handle that? How do you spend that? Here for them, it's tragic because of what they did. They did not return to the Lord. They just spent that blessing in more sinful pursuits. And so you see that here, verse two. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. What's their evil? Well, look at the end of verse one. They deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. Now, what's happening here? Well, you remember your pastor a couple weeks ago talked about in chapter four, verse two, the swearing, the lying, the murder, the stealing, the committing adultery, this sort of reference in verse two of, of Hosea chapter four to the 10 commandments. This is like a repeating of that. By no means is we find here in chapter seven, verse one, the, the full litany of all of their sins and transgressions, but it's a representation. You name it, they've done it. They've done it. And God has seen it all. But then God is an equal opportunity confronter. And we see that here in the text. Because look at what it says in verse three. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. Verse five, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. Verse seven, all of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. This indictment for these depraved crimes starts at the very top. The leaders themselves, the leaders themselves Everyone who is in a position of power in the nation, the priesthood, the military, the members of the royal court, all corrupt. All corrupt. In fact, you can see that in chapter 7, verse 7, where it talks about their kings have fallen. Do you know how they fell? 
This isn't a passage that these people were not capable to walk well. They fell because they were killed by their successors. Power-hungry people that just loved more of themselves, driven by pride, driven by power. It says they were corrupt. It has been said, so goes the leadership, so goes the people. Certainly proved true here with Israel. Why? Because look at the transition in verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is like a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength. He knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. He knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. See, now he's transitioned from the leadership overall to the people overall. The people themselves the people are culpable in their nation's sin. They, they cannot blame their elected leaders. They, they cannot blame other people that are over them, that if they were in those roles and those offices, that they would choose otherwise. Sound familiar? Instead, everybody bears culpability for where they are. He speaks about this, talks about this challenge. They do not seek help from the Lord. Look at verse 11. Ephraim. Remember, it's like Israel is like a dove. Oh, how adorable. Not really. Silly and without sense. How so? They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. The nation that once enslaved them in previous generations, that's who's on the quick dial on their phone for 911. Assyria, who is knocking on their door and going to overrun them, that's who they seek for help. I mean, do, do you see the madness of sin? Do you see how sin makes you do stupid things? That's what's happening here in the text. That's why he says here that, that they're silly, that they're without sense. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. It doesn't even make any sense. Why would they do this? It's how the people are. Rather than seeking the Lord's help, they repeatedly sought out alliances with their neighbors. Look at Hosea chapter 8, verse 9 says they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Israel has spent money to other nations to help protect them. And God is like, are you, are you serious? The, the, the nations that are like a drop in a bucket to me, you ask them to help you? How does that make any sense? This is exactly what happens. What we see ultimately here is that blessing brought more sinful choices. The things that God gave to be a blessing actually became bad thing in how they handled it. Now, perhaps you're like me and you're sort of initially going through this text as I have been in the previous weeks and thinking through this and thinking, wow, those people are jacked up. They're still here. We should pray for them. But friends, I, I think that the worldliness that crept into Israel 8th century BC can be also be seen creeping into the church today in 21st century AD. And how would we see that? How would that be known? Well, let's consider this, if you will. Well, the problem here in the text is not the lack of the appearance of religion. In fact, what we see here is that these people are actually quite religious. Whether it's good worship or bad worship, they nevertheless are still offering things to the Lord. In fact, it says in chapter 8, verse 13, they make sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Why? 
because he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Now, what would that look like for us? Well, consider this just as a point of reflection, as a point of consideration for just our lives here in the 21st century. Do you know that youth sports in America, not college, not pros, just little Johnny, cute Susie, is a $15 billion industry $15 billion industry, which quite honestly doesn't surprise us. I'm not concerned about the economics of it, in so much as only the problem is so many people in the church have bought into what the world has bought into, which is your identification as a parent is how good you provide everything for your kids and how much you find your identity in their accomplishments. Give us some trophies, please. I need some medals, please. I need some affirmation, please. Ultimately, I will give up my family life on the altar of the idolatry of a future scholarship. But what do you gain and what do you give up? Now listen, I'm not saying sports are wrong. I grew up in sports, my kids play sports, but, but how often are we missing out in our time to say, what do we want our kids to know the best? How to kick a soccer ball, how to throw a baseball, or how to know the word of the Lord? How many family devotions are being missed because we're sitting in cars being driven around the country because this is where we find our identity? Friends, it's not just in sports, though. We can attend small groups in each other's houses twice a month, but then deny inviting any of our neighbors into our house once a month. If we don't befriend them, who will? They're your neighbors, not mine. You invite yours, I'll invite mine. Making space and our lives, opening our hearts to those around us who might love them, as opposed to finding all these blessings God has given us as a way to pursue sinful desires. See, the problem sometimes is when we receive God's grace, we can use it to like just serve ourselves, and that's not what God wants us to do, right? I mean, sometimes just thinking is like, well, if God is such a forgiving God, I'll give him some more to forgive. That would be maddening, but Paul's aware of that in Romans, right? Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. Grace is so amazing. He knows the obvious question in chapter 6, verse 1. Well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. See, God believes in the doctrine of justification and sanctification. If we're going to identify ourselves as God's people, then we have to practice that before the watching nations. Where our allegiance, our allegiance and our commitment is to Sometimes, though, these blessings can just lead to more sinful choices. Maybe you've heard of the name David Milch. David Milch is a 71-year-old and four-time Emmy-winning writer-producer who co-created the classic series NYPD and HBO's show Deadwood. Before his career in Hollywood, he was an English literature professor at Yale. So this guy's not lacking here. Over the span of his three decades in Hollywood, he has made more than $100 million. But today, David owes $17 million in debt. And he lives on a $40 a week allowance. Because of all that blessing is given, he gambled it all away. Now, my point here is not, let's pick on David. But how much has David also become a modern parable for us of God's blessing? Has God blessed you with a season of singleness? How is that spent for the Lord? Resources, finances, health, houses and apartments, how is that turning itself into an offering to the Lord and not a praise and a love and a devotion to self? We would do well to learn these lessons, which takes us to the second movement towards redemption. 
The first movement is this indictment for depraved crimes. The second movement is the implications for destructive choices. The implications for destructive choices. So we kind of see the litany of these transgressions in chapter 7. But then in chapter 8 and chapter 9, it kind of begins to unpack for us. In chapter 8, it's summarizing their sinful actions. We've referenced a few of those already. If you'll just look at verse 13 of chapter 8 and verse 14, it kind of gives us an overall summary here. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, and they shall return to Egypt. Why? For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So with this summary in place of their sin, chapter 9 begins to tell us, okay, here's the implications. Israel, here's implications for you in light of the decisions that you have made. Now, look with me at chapter 9. First of all, he says, there's going to be a loss of joy. Look at verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have played a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Loss of joy. But then verses 3 through 6, he talks about a loss of land. Look at verse 3. For they shall not remain the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Oh, it gets worse. Verses 7 through 9, a loss of wisdom. Look at verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Why? The prophet is a fool. The one who is known for wisdom from the Lord is now not. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. Not just a loss of joy, a loss of the land, a loss of wisdom. Look at verses 10 through 16, and this is arguably the most uncomfortable section in these four chapters. It's a loss of children. A loss of children. What he says here in verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. How? No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. It gets worse. Verse 12. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Oh. Oh. And as if that wasn't enough, sort of the, the final exclamation mark, verse 17, the loss of the Lord himself. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Oh my goodness, does this just sound so tragic, so significant. And it reminded me this past week, as even I was thinking about this as a father with my sons, of a similar text. I want you to look with me, keeping your finger in Hosea. Just go to the left in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Briefly look here with me, the book of Proverbs. See what's happening in this text. Proverbs chapter 1, specifically, what's going on here, what the preacher says. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. 
Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Verse 23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And this is typically where our family devotions stop. Son, listen to me. I'm trying to share with you what Solomon shared with his son. This is good stuff. And if you listen, it's going to go well with you. So just, you know, listen up and obey. Wisdom, it's got some good things to it. Let's close in prayer. All right, good chat. But the text doesn't stop there. Text that makes us uncomfortable. Look at what it says here. In verse 24, because I have called and you refuse to listen, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Verse 28, they will call upon me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Why? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Oh my. Pastor Eric said it well, and he's talking earlier about justice. He said, you know, there's something understandable that we love justice. The problem is we love when others get justice, not ourselves. Right? I mean, true story. This is justice support recovery group right here. I'll go first. God is saying, listen, you want justice. I I I do justice. What he's saying here in this, con, in, this, in this representation of Proverbs is, listen, you cannot continue in sin and there not be consequences. God's not some sort of spiritual grandfather. And I don't mean to speak ill of you being a grandfather. I'm not one, so I'm sure it's awesome. But like, you know, oh, it's okay. You broke your grandmother's vase. Come here and get on my lap. Let's get some candy. No, God's not God. God speaks truth, and he wants the truth to be heard, and so it is not heard. He, he must, and as a demonstration of his justice, deliver on those consequences so that you learn from that. You know, you know what Proverbs 1 is? Proverbs 1 is the lesson that Hosea 9 is teaching in biography fashion. We're, we're learning from Hosea what Solomon was talking about here, as he says in chapter 9 of verse 17 of Hosea. I'm going to leave. My God will reject them. This is significant. This is like a, an ammonia tablet. You ever been to the doctor and kind of been out of it? Maybe got a little wheezy or something or something in sort of an athletic field and somebody came up and popped one of those ammonia tablets? If you've never had it happen, I don't recommend it. Don't play with ammonia tablets. It's a public service announcement. Why? Because it, it is like, it gets into your nose and it just like awakens you. It's like immediately your heart starts to rush. You're like, oh, good night. What is that? Stop. Hosea 7, 8, 9 is God's ammonia tablet being broken in our sinuses this morning to awaken us, to remind us of truth, truth which takes us to the third movement towards redemption, the indications of divine grace. The indications of divine grace. He describes this in chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. 
yields its fruit. The more his fruit is increased, the more altars he builds. His country's improved. He, he improves his pillars, meaning he's doing this false worship. The heart is false. Now they must bear the guilt. And he continually talks about this in verse 4. They're making empty oaths when they make these covenants. God says in verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them. But here comes the foreshadowing of the mercy of God, verse 12. Chapter 10, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. What are you seeing here? You're seeing murmurs of hope. The sort of foreshadowing appetizer fashion of what gets brought in full color 3D dimension in chapter 11 of God who is gracious and who has promised this grace not because Israel deserved it but because God is keeping his covenant with his people. God is keeping his covenant because he swore by himself, I am. And that's exactly what he is saying here. But notice what he says here in verse 12. It is the time. Time for what? To seek the Lord. Friends, for some of you here today, it's time. Enough waiting, enough delaying, enough disobeying. It's time. For some of you, that time means you give up. You surrender. You give your life to Christ and you realize there is no hope given under heaven by which any man or woman can be saved but in the name of Jesus Christ. So you turn and you trust in Christ. You no longer trust in your family. You no longer trust in your church attendance. You no longer trust in your morality as compared to other people's immorality. You trust only in Christ. For others, you give up because you realize there's no other alternative. Though you're in Christ, Living in sin creates this habitual treadmill of brokenness and emptiness. You feel it. You know what it's like. And God, according to Hebrews 12, is faithfully disciplining you that he might bring you back to himself. See, God loves to save sinners. Some states in the United States have what's called a three strikes law. Three strikes law basically says if you commit three felonies, upon your third felony, three strikes, you're out. Like this baseball analogy. And so at the third strike, it automatically guarantees the life prison sentence. And it's a debate within uh, criminal justice systems as to how well it really is addressing this issue. Are we not thankful God does not believe in a three strikes law? Who here would have any hope? Who here would go, oh, I'm only at two right now. I'm holding strong. No, friends. God's grace in saving sinners is so that in saving them, it might bring more praise to the glory of his grace. Ephesians chapter one. That the people of God would be a testimony of not of their goodness. Oh, the story is too honest for us to think anything else. But of his graciousness. God loves to save sinners. And the reason this is encouraging is because perhaps some of you are actually thinking you are beyond rescue. You sit there today in shame or guilt. You you feel the weight of that condemnation. 
Friends, listen to Paul as he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Come to Christ and find that condemnation lifted and find forgiveness, believed or not perceived or not felt or not is nevertheless true. God saves sinners just like me and just like you. This is exactly what we're seeing here, how God does this. Now, the question is, just how seriously should we take this? Because honestly, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, well, I identify with this, but let's deal with this later. Let's sort of kick this can down the street. I've done this in my own home. I've done this with my children, done this with friends. You know, like you've, you've sinned against people. And you're like, that's probably not good. And I realize that, but I'm going to go public with that. Because if I go public with that, they're going to know they were right. And I'm not ready to wave the white flag yet. I do this in my marriage. Like twice in 21 years, I think. <laughs> I don't remember what happened, but... Oh, yeah, it was this morning. That's right. Anyway. <laughs> the challenge here that we see with the Israelites, they did not take their sin as seriously as God took it. But what we see here also in the text is that God taking our sin more seriously than we taking it is a good thing because... He took it so seriously, he sacrificed his son on the cross to make payment for it. That all those who would believe in his son would be forgiven. Would know what it means to be pardoned and credited with all of the righteousness of the son of Jesus, son Jesus Christ. And that we rejoice. So friends, whether it's to you who has never trusted in Christ, today is that day. To you who have but are living in sin unrepentant, today is that day. Or whether it's others who are knowingly in humility, not knowing in any unconfessed sin, still seek the Lord that you might speak of the Lord to others this coming week as you even begin to pray now about who that might be. So let's say a biography is going to be written about this church. What will it say? What lessons will be learned from your guy's story? What about your life? You do realize a biography has been written by you right now about you. Most of it will never be published, but nevertheless still to be taught. Will those lessons be one where you are telling the story that God is a great God, a forgiving God, and worthy to be praised, and there's hope found in Christ, or tell a different story that God can be trifled with, thought lightly of, and have the consequence from that? Friend, I pray you choose the former, not the latter. Let's pray. God of grace and mercy, we thank you for that very thing, grace and mercy. We confess we would prefer the grace and mercy and not the wrath and judgment. We would rather you be a God who is to our own liking, but truthfully, God, we don't really want that. We need you, all of you, all of your holiness, all of your righteousness, all of your wisdom, all of your sovereignty, and we worship and praise you, not according to our image, but who you are as represented in your son, Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. God, we pray your blessing upon this church, its pastors, and each person. They might be right with you today, tomorrow, and the days ahead as we continue to worship you well beyond these hours here. Amen.